Hi, I'm Brett Terpstra, and this is Systematic on ESN. My guest this week is a return guest, Dr. Pamela Peek. Uh, she is a nationally renowned physician, scientist, expert, and thought leader in the fields of integrative and preventive medicine. Uh, also a lot of TV work and writing. And how's it going, Dr. Pam? I am here and so happy to be back. Love I'm, it. I'm happy to have you back. Last time you were on, I was kind of at a low point in my physical health life. I Yeah, we talked a lot. But since that time, I have lost 37 pounds. I'm jogging, jogging every day, going yeah, to man. yoga classes three times a week, lifting weights. I am I'm fit to survive now. Mm-hmm. I uh, and feeling much better mentally and physically. I think I wrote a book about this. I could be wrong. <laughs> Which is actually one of our main topics today. Do you think? Back in uh, around 2009, you put out a book called Fit to Live. So tell me what that is. So, you know, honestly, Brett, I've just gotten so tired as a, you know, an expert in the field of uh, fitness, nutrition, and integrative medicine of, of people, you know, getting out there and just uh, all they care about really is fitting into a better pair of jeans and looking hot and back and forth. Not to say that there's nothing wrong with looking good and feeling good. It's just that they were missing an incredibly important, awesome nuance to this whole issue of literally being fit mentally, physically, because I look at it as a as a holistic play here. And one day I was just walking along. This is when I conceptualized the book. Um, and I said to myself, what if, you know, I started playing the what if game. What if there was a burning building and I was on the 20th floor and I had to run down 20 flights and save my life? You know, this is the World Trade Center kind of stuff, you know, when 9-11 sure. hit. And you have no idea how many people died just trying to get down 80 flights of stairs. They died because they couldn't do it. Um, or what if I had to go up? you know, 20 flights of stairs to be able to get to the roof and to safety, you know, for whatever reason. Uh, and I came up with all these scenarios and I thought, my God, this is fitness with um, a survival twist. It's literally, are you fit to live? And then, of course, I expanded this into something, you know, a little bit more philosophical, too, which is, are you fit to live your dreams? You know, if you wanted to go up those steps at the Parthenon, are you speed dialing 911 just to get up to the top? I mean, come on. What are, are you somebody who wants to climb that mountain? You got to be fit to do that mentally I'm sure and physically. there's an Uber for that, though. I know, man. See? <laughs> get a Sherpa for the, at the end. See, somehow I knew you were going to ruin this whole damn thing. Okay? <laughs> I'm on this whole thing. I'm on, a, I'm on a roll here, right? And then an Uber shows up or a Lyft or whatever. So... That's that's what I was uh, conceptualizing, and I wrote the book, and it, it basically uh, had five stars to it, as it were. So, are you mentally uh, fit to live? That means stress resilience. Do you have what it takes to adapt and adjust no matter what life throws your way? Are you nutritionally fit to live? Are you eating trash? Or are you eating something that your belly bugs, those are the 100 trillion friendly bacteria that live in the microbiome in your belly, are you making them happy? Are you feeding them well? Are you wiping them out? What are we doing here, right? Um, the third thing is, are you physically fit to live? 
If your uh, child was running toward a, you know, a busy intersection and was going to run into the street, could you run after that child fast enough to save its life? Right. Yeah. Um, and then interestingly, I added two more. Are you financially fit to live? What? I'm a doctor. What am I talking about that? Well, this actually came because of my of, of, of working in the field. When I say, look, if you if you can't afford a pair of sneakers, you're not taking a walk. So are you are you literally planning well enough to be able to maintain your level of fitness in any way, shape or form? And so you have to be responsible enough to be able to do that and even save every little penny you have and be very smart about how you do that. Make it work for you. Then the fifth one was very interesting. Are you environmentally fit to live? All right. So if you open the door to your house, it looked like a bomb went off. Right. Because um, there's no way you can possibly feel good and not stressed out if the place looks like it's, you know, a clutter fest and it looks like in the next episode on hoarders. So you, you've got to you know work that and you've got to be organized enough to be able to have a, an environment within which to be able to feel like you can even exercise that fit to live thing. So when all of this was put together. I showed the manuscript and book to uh, my guys at the Discovery Channel because I was already um, chief medical correspondent for nutrition and fitness and already hosting the National Body Challenge series for eight years, which was really cool. Was, you know, really looking at families and, and how they get fit um, in every single way. And uh, the Discovery Channel went nuts over this. And they said, we have to make a unique series and so what they decided to call it after 900 focus groups was, could you survive? You just and jumped way ahead here, didn't you? You should just host the show. Cool? I totally hosted the show. And <laughs> it was just amazing. And, and so we came up, we, we shoot everything, you know, for the Discovery Channel in L.A. because of the of the wonderful weather there. You know, we could shoot all year long. So, um, you mean the, and, the fires or uh, is it the uh, drought? What's the wonderful weather there? It's the weather. I mean, in other <laughs> words, if I wanted to shoot in the middle of winter, you know, Idaho is not the place to be. Uh, it's much more like L.A. So if you're looking for survival, you should come to Minnesota in January. Dude, um, I don't even start with me. I mean, I, I can, you know, I can tell you I'm fit, to, I'm fit to survive that. Totally. So, you know, what we did was we came up with these wild and crazy scenarios of like, you know, the burning building thing. And then we had the drowning and then we had the um, the fire in the in the forest. And it was just wild and crazy. And we had, you know, these uh, innocent people <laughs> that we casted. I love the casting because I have to do the casting, you know, along with my whole team. And it was wild. Um, uh, we got these people who you know, uh, really broke the stereotype. For instance, you know, many people would probably believe that the skinny person, you know, would be the one who would be able to get out of that burning building fast. Well, the skinny, if you're skinny, doesn't mean you're fit. So it turns out that none of them were fit enough. I don't care what the heck they look like. And we ended up uh, having them go through, you know, physical training, mental training to be able to redo the entire sequence again and this time save their own life. It was a really cool series and it won all kinds of awards. So that's the whole essence of Fit to Live. That's amazing, but I have to keep I have to keep hammering on this. Did you do anything that involved surviving uh like your car breaks down in negative fifty weather and you have to get to the nearest phone? Actually we did. Yeah. That was you're not gonna believe this. 
that was one of our um, first sequences. It was amazing. We were in the middle of nowhere. Car breaks down. What do you do? Right. And um, it, it was hotter than a hornet yeah, out there. See, no, I'm course, talking about frostbite survival. You got to be fat for dude, that. We don't do cold. We don't do cold. No, 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 no. No, it's got to be the hot thing. Cause, I mean, otherwise, what is the point of being in L.A.? Right. And um, so see, that's the question I have a lot of times anyway. What is the point <laughs> of being in L.A.? Well, you know, I'll Easy tell you access one, to film crews, I think. Well, hey, listen, there's a lot of that going on. They grow on every corner, right? And everybody, and here's the other thing. When we cast, um, think about it. I mean, we're casting for, you know, a series, and there's a lot of work and back and forth. For some reason, people live in the L.A. area just love to be casted. (laughs) They're everywhere. Well, that's why they're in L.A. Well, duh. (laughs) (laughs) And that's why we're not up in Minnesota where people say, oh, my God. I'm not going to be on TV. Yeah, Never. but see, but then the okay. people you do get might actually be like better than the the waiter who's been like sticking his screenplays under bathroom stalls for a while. No, but wait a minute now. Okay, <laughs> so let let me just tell you the backstory on casting. I have never seen so many ex felons. You know, we specifically say you cannot have a criminal record. You know, you can't be on 900 psychotropics. You can't. No, none of this is going to work. And instead, we have these people just lie and, you know, and we do. And they don't realize we do background checks. We find out, you know, someone's killed their neighbor and you know, they want <laughs> out our show. Did that really, I'm not even kidding you. Wow. I'm like, are you? I got rap sheets on these people. <laughs> I said, did you really think you could get through our vetting process? I mean, come on, give me a break. Yeah, I would and, think once you have a felony conviction, you would just assume that people are going to find that out. That doesn't take a well, lot of searching. Yeah, but they still show up. They are entertaining, I will tell you. But, oh, my gosh. See, in it's, Minnesota, it's no one ever kills their neighbor. Mm, that's because they can't true. find them underneath the snow drifts. That's fair. <laughs> you gotta and find and if, they, if you do, they're already dead. I know, we have totally. people die walking out of the bar here. They trip, fall in a snowbank, can't get up, and freeze to death within an hour. See, I, I can't do cold. You know, I was born and raised in California, and I still don't see the purpose of winter. Could you help me with this? Why be cold? It's to Why make have people that tough sp- enough to survive. No, that's not true. No, no I, I'll, I d- I'll put you out in a desert, and you can do that. <laughs> I would I would move to California. Everything's really cheap here. To me, it's worth the, uh, the, the pain for a really easy life mm. you know, for at least six months a year. Ah, you think? I Honestly? Do. Yeah. <laughs> More than anything else. I love it. So, you know, that's that's the essence of fit to live. And so you know what this really becomes, seriously? Um, it's functional fitness. It's all functional fitness. That means that when you learn to become mentally and physically and nutritionally fit, it's to it's for a function. You want to be able to use your entire body and your mind to be able to, you know, navigate a situation instead of just standing there and do, doing countless biceps curls, right? Like, for what? So you I know, gotta what, tell you, go? like, all yeah. of my physical changes happened because I discovered accidentally that, okay, so first they cut, my, my doctors changed and they cut the meds I was taking for my ADHD and I was left for a year without being able to work very well and... In the process, I accidentally discovered that intense exercise would fix my brain for a while. 
Yes. So yes. I started doing intense exercise at pretty regular intervals just to be able to think straight. And in the process, started losing weight, started feeling stronger, and really got kind of addicted to the exercise in a way that I'd kind of always wished I could, but had always given up after two weeks. But now that it wasn't about checking a scale, it was about like actually like immediate reward day to day. I was able to stick with it. And I have for like six months now run or at least hiked uh, five to six miles every day. Uh, if I'm hiking, it's five. If I'm running, it's a few miles. But um, but yeah. And well, so it like it got to a point where I feel really strong day to day. It used to be like bending over to feed the cats. I'd hurt my back. And now I can run through the woods and on trails and feel great. What's happened in your brain is something fascinating, and that is that um, there are a couple of centers, big time centers in your brain, actually three of them that got that got affected. The first one's a reward center. And when you know when you do physical activity, especially high intensity um, type training, um, but just what you're doing, you know, hitting the trails, doing the hikes, um, doing some of the running back and forth, your reward center is igniting. And now you're getting this rush of dopamine, um, which is the, you know, real, real excellent feel good um, uh, neurotransmitter. At the same time, you're also getting a rush of serotonin, um, which is a mood modulator. It's your natural mood modulator. Uh, and it'll make you feel much more ironically calm, even though you're really exerting yourself. And the same time, endorphins are kicking in and endorphins are more, po- are more potent than morphine. They're your body's morphine because as you're running, you don't want to hurt. And so the body thinks that you're running for survival and therefore it's going to ease up on you and allow you to continue to run and decrease the pain. So what's happening is you're getting this wonderful convergence of, you know, better living through your own chemistry, which is exactly what's happened to you. At the same time, you're also stimulating neurogenesis, meaning that you're making more new nerve cells or brain cells um, throughout your brain. Um, And by doing so, you're carving new neural circuitry to be able to supervene over the old mental health issues um, so that you end up literally duking it out in your brain for a while as as you've got these two parallel circuitries, um, uh, circuits, And then one begins to supervene over the other, which is what's happened to you, which is exactly what we love. Um, At the same time, one of the wonderful uh, consequences of this happens in the frontal lobe, um, which is your executive function, which helps you organize, plan, strategize, right? It also helps you rein in impulsivity, irritability, and impatience. And when you do all of that, you're able to actually function. You're able to think with greater clarity, get your work done. And then at the same time, the the third piece of the brain, the amygdala, which handles fight and flight, is calmed down. Now you don't have that stressful, horrible feeling um, when things just aren't going well at all. Now that basically is turned down to the lowest level because you're not in any survival situation. No reason to feel fight and flight. Now what you're doing is allowing yourself the red carpet to, you know, go through the door there of clarity, of organization and productivity, let alone creativity. Yeah. So 
physical activity is all of that. By the way, you should look in the um, Time magazine has a new uh, uh, piece out. I think it's a, um, a lead uh, feature. It's called The New Science of Exercise. And what you're going to be able to see in there is a sort of a summation of a lot of what I've just said. Have you read a book called Spark? Oh, yeah. Hello. One of my friends wrote it. <laughs> oh, okay. That's been repeatedly recommended to me. It's on my, uh, my Kindle reading list right now. Well, there's another one, too, speaking of jumping ahead and looking at books. Um, another one that just came out called Lift, L-I-F-T, by Daniel Kunitz, K-U-N-I-T-Z. And um, if you just put aside the fact that he's a bit of a rabid um, CrossFitter, because uh, there's issues with <laughs> CrossFitting. Well, actually, isn't that redundant? Wait a minute. That's redundant. CrossFit, rabid. Um, no, instead, uh, just look at what he wrote historically. He started with the, uh, the era of the Greeks, and the Greeks weren't sitting there going, hey, let's do 900 biceps curls. They're like, forget that. Let's throw boulders at each other. Um, so they throw boulders at each other, and then they run up and down hills and go up and down ropes and back and forth. They were completely functional. Because they were actually getting ready for things like, oh, I don't know, wars and and other issues. They wouldn't stand there like idiots in the sun doing biceps. Everything they did involved multiple planes, moving the body through multiple planes and using um, all muscles and all bellies of each of the muscles. It was beautiful stuff. And then eventually over time, things got stupid, you know, flashing forward. And now, boy, I, I went through about a million years there. And now what's happening is we're coming full full circle and we're realizing, oh, my God, you know, instead of standing there staring at yourself in the mirror in the, in the weight room, you know, just doing the biceps curls, why aren't we doing something more functional? And that's why trainers today who are on top of the program – um, fitness professionals, what they'll do is they'll take you through all kinds of wild and crazy things to do with your body, you know, to get those uh, kettleballs rocking. And then now we're going to use some TRX and, and lean on that stuff and do this and that. It's really cool. And that makes much more sense. And it's also more fun for people to actually do more engaging, which is why you're seeing a lot more outdoor boot camps, as it were. Sure. Um, that type of thing. And of course, anything, I'm an outdoors fanatic. So anything that takes you, you know, um, through REI directly into your workout, <laughs> you know, is a good experience in my mind. So I highly recommend the book Lift. Just, you know, um, disregard the chapters where he gets a little rabid about the CrossFit thing. Um, when I was a kid, I, uh, I spent a lot of time outdoors and I became obsessed uh, by probably about the age nine with survival. Oh, and yeah. I, like I started picking up like the FM army manuals from the surplus store and learning all the how to how to snare a rabbit, you know, when I'm you know nine or ten years old. And and I would I would occasionally just go out in the woods for a night with no tent uh, just to see if I could do it. This is like like more like age of eleven or twelve by then. But is this like naked Boy Scout kind of stuff? You well, know what I'm saying? I I would say it was Boy Scout kind of stuff. I did I did join the Boy Scouts for that specific reason. Um, ah. But as, it was weird for me because as someone I'm a, like a rabid liberal, um, bleeding heart kind of guy, and I found that all survivalists that I met were uh, conspiracy kooks uh extremely uh 
conservative types. And I kind of, I don't know, I shied away from it. But I still maintain that those basic skills <laughs> are, um, are kind of valid to human existence. We're still, we're still animals, and the reality we've constructed is not forever. And, uh, and being able to, say, run away from a fire seems like a valid skill. Yeah, you know, really seriously, you know, I, I publish this, um, you know, I write for U.S. News and World Report and I, I shared with you um, one of my latest uh, columns, which I decided to write, Are You Fit to Live? Because everyone's been yelling and screaming at me now to, you know, uh, circle back and do some more of this and, and grab the book out again. And um, this whole issue of survival is so important. You know, sadly, we now live in a world where we never know what's going to happen next. I'm not even kidding. You know, where you have uh, people running um, in malls and airports and streets from bad things. And I know it's a it's a funky thing to bring up, but it's actually very true. Um, at the same time, you never know when something's going to hit. Could be a fire in the in your office building. It could be almost anything. And people almost never think about the survival thing anymore because they live a cush life. Yeah. 21st century, you sit on your behind all day. Well, you know, for everyone out there who's getting a little soft, all you got to do is go outside, take a hike somewhere, literally take a hike, and you tell me how you feel, right? Yep. How, how, how'd that work for you? <laughs> when I, you when I first when I first started moving, like getting off my butt, I would just walk a mile in the woods, one mile. There you go. And there you go. that immediately started having the effect, but then as I got stronger... I had to walk a lot more miles, but, um, but yeah, just like just walking. People ask me, people, people who see the the weight I've lost are they want to know how I did it? What's your secret? And yeah, no, just start walking and just go further every day, and and do it consistently, right? So it doesn't happen by taking a one walk a, a month. Okay? No, it's do it every be day for consistent. six months, and you'll get somewhere. Well, you know, the other thing too, it becomes a practice. See, it's no longer, and I quote, a workout. You know, I, you know, I don't like that word very much anymore. I, I, I think that's a, appropriate if you're an Olympian or whatever your issue is. Instead, it's like, are you practicing, right? It's yeah. a practice. It's like martial arts. You and know, like I've, meditation. You know, absolutely. It's, Which it's I've practice. also started doing and consider highly beneficial. So are you doing some mindfulness? Yeah. Awesome. Yep. And, and when you do that, you change gene expression. So whatever genes you have in your body, the grand majority of your genes have a dimmer switch on them. This is a science called epigenetics. And what happens is when you do something like meditation, we have so much new science on this now. It's just, it's, it's so amazing. What you're able to do is take whatever the negative genes are in you. It could be genes for depression. It could be for obesity, for heart disease, whatever it may be. And you change them such that you you downregulate the negative ones and you upregulate the good ones. And so you're able to enhance the expression of the better genes and you're able to uh, uh, decrease the expression of the more negative genes. And we've been able to measure this now. Soon, I would estimate in the next five years, we're going to be able to do this commercially. But right now we can't. It's very complex. And I'm, you know. Do, do um, what commercially? What we're going to be able to do is something amazing. Um, you ever watch CSI, you know, uh, that television show yes. or anything uh, like that? All you know 14 how seasons, yes. Uh, really? See, yeah. I'm, I went back, I'm not even kidding you, 
to the pilot and I'm going right back all over again. I'm so obsessed with CSI. Yeah, I did that so, recently. Yeah. Well, so it, it's great binge, um, binge iPad, um, Hulu stuff. Mm-hmm. So you know how they're always um, swabbing everybody. I mean, if you look <laughs> yeah. at them the wrong way, they're swabbing your, your inner <laughs> cheek. I mean, it's like, oh, my God, I've just been swabbed. Um, so what you're going to be able to do is swab. Okay, and then at the same time, I know this sounds a little bit funny, but you're going to be able to also um, uh, give a a little bit of a fecal sample. Um, So there are going to be two little things you're going to mail into um, some, you know, research laboratory company, whatever. And the fecal sample is going to give us an idea of what your bacterial flora, uh, whether it's a healthy bacterial flora, um, is in your microbiome, which is um, all the belly bugs, 100 trillion of them that you better be taking good care of. Um, and then at the same time, the swab is going to um, allow us to look at certain clusters of genes that are specific to everything from physical fitness, nutritional fitness, mental health, um, inflammation, it's extraordinary. Then we put it all together and we literally give you an individualized and custom customized way of being able to show you how you can optimize those. Now, if once you do the intervention, I might say things like, you know, increase the amount of healthy fat because you're not getting enough fat in your diet because I get a dietary journal from you too. All right. So let's just say uh, three months, four months goes by. Then what happens is I swab it and I do the little, you know, fecal sample again, right? And now um, I'm going to have a comparison. We've never been able to compare before, ever. Now what we can actually compare and, and, and look at and observe is a change in gene expression. It's called methylation. We can actually watch the gene turning on and off. It's the wildest thing ever. And um, we can now do this in our experiments, but we haven't, you know, yet simplified it well enough to be able to do it commercially. What we can do commercially is actually look at your genes, but we can't look at gene expression yet. We're waiting to do that. So where does it where does that lead beyond just fitness plans? Is there potential for like pharmaceutical alteration of gene expression? Oh, God, yeah. We've already done that. And then we've done that in cancer. For instance, um, we can actually look at the BRCA gene, which is the breast cancer gene, or, you know, very tough cancer genes like that, that we can actually identify very easily because we know how to do it, right? Yeah. And then what we do is we just target that little sucker. We say, forget all the other genes. We're, we're gunning after you. And then what we do is we find out which of the um, specific um, uh, therapeutics um, that we have um, that can really nail that one gene. And then we watch what happens to that gene. That gene therapy now is becoming so potent and so powerful that we're actually able to now look at reversals and um, uh, extraordinarily long remissions in cancers that were lethal within a very short period of time. Wow. Yeah. And it's actually been kicking around now at the National Cancer Institute for quite some time because we just decided, hey, we're not wasting any time. We're going to go right for cancer because that's one of the big boys. Now what we're doing is we're like, for instance, you said meditation. What if, you know, for all the naysayers out there who say, no, meditation, a bunch of, you know, earthy, crunchy losers do this and, you know, um, and then they do the little, you know, uh, 
looking away and, and glancing away saying, nah, I don't want to have any part of it. What if I were able to show you, right, that you were turning on and off genes by the very practice of meditation? Would that just be the coolest? And um, people have gone nuts over this. So we take these little groups of inflammatory genes that everyone knows how to find very easily, you know, all of us in science. And then what we do is we say, okay, now you're a non-meditator. Here's your baseline. All right, let's get you into a practice of meditation. Then about three, four months later, we come back and we look at those inflammatory genes. Lo and behold, what we find is that the inflammation is turned way, way down. And non-meditators tend to have much higher levels of inflammation. Why should we care about that? Because inflammation is the basis of all bad disease. Diabetes, heart disease, and cancer are all inflammatory. Trust me, you want to be one anti-inflammatory humanoid. And so meditation is that powerful. Is that powerful. I think that scientific evidence would make a huge difference for a lot of people in oh, yeah. recent years um a lot of eastern practices that have been kind of adopted by the uh, crunchy granola community have been scientifically debunked while while many of them have been scientifically uh kind of endorsed things like acupuncture have come under a lot of fire from the scientific community and i feel like for the average person who isn't spending a lot of time at the local co-op um, or in drum circles, having some kind of scientific evidence from a trusted you know, source would make a huge difference in the acceptance of that kind of thing. Well, I'm glad you brought up acupuncture because acupuncture now has been shown, and this is by um, a very, very recent um, study that was backed by the National Institutes of Health, Right. So that's the highest level of credibility and of vetting um, in this sphere. And what we found was acupuncture, which we've known all along through other studies, um, highly credible studies, Hopkins and others, um, is, is, is exquisitely helpful in things like, for instance, um, nausea, vomiting, back pain. Right. It's a really great one for back pain, especially. Um, and so now what we found is that acupuncture we're looking at the mechanism of how it does it. Son of a gun. Hello, gene expression. It does exactly what we thought it was going to do. And that is it down regulates the bad genes. In other words, it's able to work through mechanisms of energy flow very much like the energy flow we get from an EKG or, or an electroencephalogram. Same energy flow different meridia um, channels of that energy throughout the body um, to be able to affect that kind of change. So acupuncture has actually been proven now, no longer be um, earthy crunchy at all. It's come out of the domain of woo-woo and into absolutely proven evidence-based by science um, modality, especially for pain. Interesting. I went into my, we'll say, wellness practitioner, um, She's a doctor. She is really good with a lot of things, but I never asked for or let her give me acupuncture. But I went there after I went in after a sciatica bout uh, had just started. My first first time I'd ever felt sciatica. It was, it was horrible, and um, and she stuck me in the back room after my appointment. She's like, "I'm not going to charge you. Just go lay down and stick a bunch of needles in you." And it, it, I I couldn't. You know, like I've been reading about these um, 
kind of studies that cast the whole practice into doubt, but I decided to roll with it because I'm flexible. And, um, <laughs> and so I, d- I did half an hour with a bunch of needles stuck in me and it actually, there was a significant reduction in the pain for a while. Um, I feel like a lot of that could be psychosomatic in that case, but Hey, if it works, I'm okay with sugar pills. That's cool. Well, actually, you know, the joke is, um, you know, uh, uh, how many acupuncturists does it take to screw in a light bulb? How many? Uh, just one, but you'll need 20 sessions. <laughs> <laughs> and and so what what's happening is it's sort of like the same thing with your hiking, right? It becomes a practice over time, right? And it builds and you're able to, you know, see a change over time. And again, acupuncture is an easy one for us now. Um, I was one, I was the first senior research scientist in the NIH Office of Alternative Medicine way back when. And, um, you know, I'm one of those people uh, who just, you know, says, show me the meat. I I, I need to see it. Um, Show me the beef. Uh, Where's the data? And I'm very acid about these things. And I watched acupuncture march through all of its, um, you know, paces and phases and stages of uh, investigation and due diligence. And um, flash forward to today, uh, it's it's a piece of the mainstream um, medical uh, uh, therapeutics. So we don't look at it anymore as woo-woo at all. It's actually extremely um, helpful to a boatload of people out there. For that matter, Brett, this is uh, acupuncture is uh, reimbursed by insurance. Yes. Unless Pretty you cool. get it for free and then you don't submit it at all. <laughs> but that, that that's on. good to know. That will that will improve my attitude next time. Well, I it try helps it. you be fit to live, right? right on. Um, this is all part of your you know, repertoire on learning how to be fit to live. I literally, you know, you wake up in the morning and you just ask yourself, you know, am I fit to live my dreams? What do I really want to dream about doing in my life? And do I have the mental capacity? Am I feeding and nourishing myself well enough to be able to support that? Am I physically capable of keeping up enough to be able to live that dream? That's why I love that whole concept of fit to live. And that's why I'm so glad I, you know, I conceptualize that because it just made so flipping much sense. And then son of a gun, everyone's picking it up now and it's come full circle. I love it. And I want people to start thinking about their lives like that because, you know, too many people have just gotten way out of it. And it's not their fault. It's just that our environment doesn't support challenging you. And people are going out of their way. You know, look at all the challenges now, Brett. You know, they've got the mud challenge. People and the rucksack and yeah. oh yeah, totally, man. And and so now, you know, they go to Quantico and they're like Marines, and you know, they're <laughs> jumping up and down these fences and you know, rope climbing, and it's just like oh my god. And 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 they love it, and they should love it because it's a gas and a half. You know, um, I'm a triathlete, and I just absolutely love the challenge of being able to do all those things, swim, bike, run, you know, do the weights, um, you know, bring it all together functionally. Can you, you know, uh, survive whatever, you know, they throw you out there and back and forth. I just, I think it has such meaning for people, you know, at the end of the day. And, you know, as people age, oh my gosh. Now, let me ask you a question. What is the most effective, the most effective 
it's just one exercise that everybody should know how to be able to do through their years and decades in life to mm. save their own life as they age. Just one exercise. Push-ups. You got it. Dude, that is – if you remember the picture that was on my Fit to Live um, – uh, blog that uh, U.S. News decided to choose. It was somebody doing a, a push-up on the beach. And, you know, what's really interesting is think about it for a second, right? You don't have to do um, a full leg, um, you know, a push-up, right? You could do a bent, bent knee push-up as well. But here's the gig, right? What if you're 60 years old, male, female, whatever, and you fall down? Like anybody can fall down at any age, but it, let's look at 60 for a second. You're all by yourself. You're in your house. You fell down. How are you going to get up? Okay. The answer is not waiting for the front end loader to show up at the, at the front door. That's not happening. Um, or 95 people to help you, right? Um, the way you get up, when you think about it, you can practice this when we finish this, is, is just, you know, go down to the floor for a second and try to get up. It's actually a push-up. Because the maneuver itself, when you move all your legs and arms around in a, in a particular position, really is a push-up, right? And so if you know how to be able to use and maintain the, the strength in your arms and your legs and your chest, basically your core, um, then you're going to be able to save your life one day. And that helps tremendously. But here's the great news. When you know how to do a push-up, you're working no less than six different muscles, and, you know, why not multitask? What the heck, right? Have you done forest yoga? Oh, God, absolutely. And a forest I know very, very well. Nice. I, yeah. I, that's been my favorite, most effective exercise. And things like uh, dolphin on the wall. Oh, yeah. And even just like turbo dog. Those exercises that are so shoulder and tricep intensive have helped me a lot. And like yeah. just about every area of my life, having those muscles developed has been really good for me. I know. And and people need to get back into their bodies. You know, I want to take every person out there and just, you know, take them to a national park somewhere and, and just be humbled by the fact that, you know, if you were here all by your little lonesome, could you make it? Right. Yeah. Um, are you able to understand how to keep it going mentally, physically? Right. Um, and, and I've done the Grand Canyon rim to rim twice, stayed over at Phantom Ranch and it's incredible experience. It's exquisitely humbling. Running around it or up and down it? Oh, up and down. That's 26.2 miles. If you actually add in ribbon falls at the bottom, you know, for lunch, if you can get down there in time. Uh, and I'm just saying, you know, if you actually do it rim to rim and stay at the bottom Phantom ranch, it's, it's exactly a marathon. It's 26.2 miles and it's over two days. So it's 11 miles down, right? Um, five miles at the base, 11 up or maybe six miles at the base, whatever. I did that to the Havasupai Falls, but I used a mule. So, oh man, dude, you know, (laughs) I had to use yeah, each of my legs was a mule. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that would be is. a hike for sure. Yeah, so fit to live, man. That's where it's at. Awesome. All right, so we're about to move on to top three picks, but I want to ask what's next? Like where now that you the book's been out, there's been kind of a resurgence. You had the TV show on Discovery Health. What what where is it going now this this concept? It's interesting. Um, I've been thrown all kinds of different um, 
options, including um, uh, a resurgence of the show itself now with a to, uh, with a you know more contemporary twist to it, um, adding different nuances to the whole issue of survival, which is very very exciting. Um, also retreats. Um, you know, I've done a lot of peak week retreats. And people have been yelling and screaming to have another example of, you know, how we put this together. Um, uh, a couple of large um, global uh, fitness uh, groups have uh, come to me and wanted to partner with me. So there's a, a lot of really interesting stuff going on now. And I'm very excited about this um, because I really think that this has true meaning for a larger number of people than just a bunch of the same gym jockeys that show up all the time. Nice. Yeah. All right. Like so we'll move on to the top three picks. Uh, we'll do uh, one each back and forth and you get to go first. So what's your uh, first pick of the week? Oh, dude. Well, if are we talking all things tech here? No. This is all things, all things. All anything things, anything all you things? want. Dude. All right. So I'm going to go to books immediately. Okay? Cool. All right. So there's a TED Talk you have to listen to. You have to. Right? And his name is Adam Grant. And he did one called The Originals. And it was based on his book, The Originals. <laughs> and... What, what he was actually talking about in this book, I mean, it, the book is just phenomenal. I listened to it on audible.com, um, which is my fave, um, because uh, it's just so rich. I want to just keep running it back and forth. And I love doing it when I'm running, uh, hiking, walking the dog, doing all that great stuff. So um, it all works. So what's it about? It's about people who are successful. They are the originals. But what are the characteristics of an original? Um, I'm going to give you a, a quick little tease. Oh, boy. They are strategic procrastinators. <gasps> Procrastination? Success? Impossible. Turns out you're wrong. Adam Grant is a uh, original himself. Um, he, was, he became a tenured professor at Stanford Business School in his 20s. Right. This guy is incredibly smart. And he's done a lot of the, as it were, original research on this. And he found that indeed, um, the people who were the most creative were the ones who strategically allowed things to kind of percolate in a very strategic way, instead of just immediately hopping on things and getting it done four months in advance. They tended to be more conventional thinkers. Um, and so that just gives you a little tease into some of the very unique um, attributes of people who are truly originals. I get that. I'm a super good procrastinator. Uh oh. Uh oh. <laughs> I can't say Ruh -ruh. it's. Um, I can't say it's perfectly strategic. But yeah, I understand hey. uh, how that could be a yeah. beneficial skill once honed. Mm -hmm. Nice. All right. So my first pick is an app from. Oh, I can't remember who made it now. It. Oh, Moleskin, the notebook makers. Oh, um, I love Moleskin. They came out with an app called Time Page. That is a calendar app that works with iCloud and Google Calendar and Outlook and basically is really good for uh, planning out a day, which after a recent episode of Systematic, I've been trying to do more just to see how it works. So you can kind of see single days in a very kind of linear format, but it also combines in 
travel map so you can tell how far it's going to be to your next meeting with traffic considerations and everything. Weather so you can see what the weather is going to be at future events. And uh, and then you can see uh, really finite time periods and it has an Apple Watch app and it's one of the best overall calendar apps I've seen. One of the most complete. It also has like really easy event entries so you can just while you're standing at the checkout at the doctor schedule your next appointment without you know fumbling forever and saying sorry I should just write this down but can you give me a card um but yeah so that one's been really impressive to me thus far well I'm impressed see see you impressed me I mean this was important you did impress me I try once in a while I know but you not only tried you succeeded so I'll tell you what I love all right if you want to be techie the Apple Smart Keyboard um, for my 9.7 um, iPad Pro. Oh, my God. This thing is just absolutely durable and it's comfortable to use. Um, and I take it absolutely everywhere. I type in my Apple Notes. Um, I, you're getting a 2B on this one um, because I love my Apple Notes because I can just whip them up very, very quickly. They're so much more improved today than when they first showed up. Um, and they sync so much better. And I love the feel of the keyboard. It's beyond durable. I'm telling you, the sucker gets thrown everywhere. I mean, airplanes, I drop it. I, you know, dogs walk on it. Uh, and it is absolutely superb. So it's the Apple Smart Keyboard for my iPad Pro. What do you type on when you're not on your iPad? What kind of keyboard uh, do you have on like uh, a we, computer or... Oh my goodness! Um, what is this thing? Ah, uh, uh, let me see. Why let me see. Brand aside, I have it right like here. What, what Cleek, kind? Cleek, Henge Docks. Um, I'm just reading the thing here. Um, Henge it's Henge Docks, whatever that is. Um, and uh, it's the one I use for uh, my main desk. Um, so is are they flat screen. keys? Oh yeah, flat. Are keys, they totally soft flat. keys? Um, the one I use for my uh, uh, for my iPad Pro are soft, right? And the one I use for um, the big guy um, are not. So that's my question then: it, How is it moving to the softer keys from your normal keyboard? Actually, it's not bad at all. Okay. You know, I I don't notice like, oh my God, this is a huge difference. Oh no, I mean, not at all, not at all. It's just a little bit of a different feel. You know, yeah. Um, but but it's like a comfortable feel either way because I'm used to either way, um, and so they've really improved uh, the keyboards um, for the i uh, for the iPads um, so much better now. Um, they used to have the the, the hard. Oh and yeah, then they had one I, I have the old docks. They were horrible. <laughs> horrible, horrible. And then they had one that was so um, soft, my finger got lost mm -hmm. in it. It's like, wait a minute. Oh, my God, where did my index finger go? Yeah. Um, and so that was useless. And then they came out with this uh, this current one, which I just, I can't say enough about. It's the best. Nice. Yeah. I, I don't have an iPad Pro yet, but one of the reasons I've been wanting to get one is because the, key, the accessories, the pencil and the keyboard look so useful. Oh, yeah. I feel like it would make a, a full-time computer for me. Oh, yeah. At least it for does. most things. Not necessarily for development, but... Or podcasting. Maybe. Yet. Uh -huh. It'll get there. Oh, All yeah. Right. So, my second pick. I recently dropped my... I had my iPhone... Okay, so here's the story. Next to my toilet, 
There is a. Oh God, this is going to get to be. It's TMI, not. It's going it? to get no. It's going to get way better really fast. Um, so there's a small trash can that has like an R2D2 shape. It's not an R2D2 trash can. It's a nice classy black trash can, but the top of it is kind of a dome. And yeah. I have things. My my iPhone has a, a nano suction cup sticker on the back, so I can set it on surfaces like that, and it won't fall over. Except I also set another heavy object on top of it and then proceeded to accidentally kick the can, not, not kick the can. That sounded like a death analogy, but I, I bumped the trash container and both fell off. The iPhone landed face down on the tile floor and then the heavier object fell on top of it and spider webbed the screen and... I had to go through the insurance thing and get a new phone, which actually went really well. But the point is, I've decided to finally put a screen protector on my phone. I don't use cases or anything like that. So I went looking for the latest and greatest in screen, like glass screen protectors. And I found one called the Max Boost Screen Protector. And it is excellent. Uh, it was easy to apply. They send like special tools basically for applying it perfectly. Because I'm not an, I everything's always crooked when I put that stuff on. So this went on perfectly, no air bubbles, nothing, and it's so thin that it's almost unnoticeable, and it doesn't even need a hole for the front-facing camera. Like it doesn't obscure that camera at all, even though it goes right over it. So that is actually a, a highly recommended choice for me. I or a high recommendation. I would say that if you have ever been averse to putting screen protectors on your phone, this would be a good uh, kind of in-between. Maybe save yourself a hundred bucks or whatever. I love it. It's a good thing. Yeah. Uh, and You know, because financial fitness is part of survival, right? <gasps> it is. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> and you're being proactive, but you're being proactive because you hike and you take good care of yourself and your frontal lobe is kicking out proactivity. I also had reactivity. To get, I had to get an armband because I started running hard enough that having the phone in my pocket started to pull my shorts off. So now I have an armband and I look like a like an actual fitness person now. Oh no. I love it. <laughs> you're you're that's okay, there are support groups for people like you. Okay, I'm just saying. I've heard. I'm just saying. You know, but just start showing up. You know, it might help. All right. So this is all good. And um you know, my uh, loving husband, Mark, um, set up um, a Sonos speaker system. Mm -hmm. And Sonos is awesome. So I, I highly recommend it. I have, we have heard, yes. Oh, my God. It, it's, it's all over this damn house. I mean, we have Sonos zones throughout the house. And they put me all in with play bars, subs. Um, I have play ones in the bathrooms. It's pretty bad. Um, and it's out of control, actually. It sounds wonderful my, to me. Well, I think my <laughs> husband actually may be going to a Sonos support group. I, I, I'm not sure. Okay, we'll have to have a conversation. Is there an armband for Sonos? I think so. Um, I really do. Big S, you know. But I'm just saying, no, really, the, the quality of the Sonos is ridiculous. It's that good. And it was really, um, once it was coordinated throughout the house and once we got it all down, it was uh, it was just very, very easy. And they look great. They're very um, 
inobtrusive um, and that you could hide them. Um, you can put them anywhere. And uh, I would highly recommend them. Almost all the reviews of the current Sonos are just phenomenal. Um, they finally got it down to a fine art. So if you want speakers, Sonos is the way to go. So your recommendation is just an entire Sonos system? Oh, totally. Um, throughout the house, don't be doing this one room thing. Come on, grow up. You <laughs> know, get point? it all over the. What's the thing. point of whole house audio systems if you only do one room? I mean, let's just get it in the bathroom. You know, <laughs> you you never know when you're going to miss that that special little whatever it is and back for it. So ten years ago, so. I, I decided I wanted whole house audio, and I began wiring up a combination of basically garage sale speakers through the walls, and and. So I had audio that would follow me around the house using um, uh, RFID locators. And so it could talk to me when I was in the bathroom without disturbing the rest of the house, but then start playing music that would lead, follow me into the kitchen. And it was horrendous. And it took me, <laughs> took me days of programming to make it work. And Sonos, from what I've heard, both sounds better and is extremely easy to set up and, and really easy and effortless to use really really easy and you know really and you know who really likes it in our in our household i'm not kidding you it's alexa that's correct we have, we have alexa in at least a couple rooms now um from our wonderful um amazon land hello alexa um and alexa will answer back and alexa likes to talk to the sonos too it's all very weird but it works have you ever seen the movie her yeah okay well you know now you understand the alexa part when the whole thing lights up there so it is right there do, it's talking are you to in me. love with alexa is that the her reference yeah, it's it's. I'm not in love with it. No, 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 no. By any means, um, uh, wrong gender anyway. But um, I'm just simply saying that it's an interesting nuance um, because you've got the Sonos thing going, you've got the Alexa thing going, the dog barking. It's all good. You know, That's, every yeah. everything is in harmony. It's that all sounds good. Sounds pretty amazing. <laughs> I've been curious about Alexa too. These are things I will I will uh, eventually be able to look into. Um, all right, so my last pick is a pretty simple, a super simple iPhone app called Blur, and it basically takes any photo and it blurs it, and it's perfect for making wallpapers because you get like you can turn. I just did a picture I had of a couple of horses in a field under a cloudy blue sky, and turned it into this very cool blue to green gradient that evokes a green field under a blue sky without actually being a green field under a blue sky. And it makes an excellent wallpaper for my phone. Ooh, blur. It's huh. very, very simple. Like literally you open it up, you pick a picture and then there's one slider that you determine how blurry it's going to get. And that's it. And then it'll save it to your camera roll and you're done. And see here, I'm asking for clarity in life and you're going to go out and blur. See, Somet sometimes Brett, things Brett, become more talk. clear. Sometimes <laughs> things become more clear if you can distance and let things blur out a little bit. Perspective. Wow. Is that like a paradox that's, yeah, or it's something? My, it's, that's my, it's from my book of Zen, um, uh, slightly meaningless Zen sayings. I like it. No, but but it, it kind of works for me. Oh, speaking of working for me, I just figured out this keyboard that you asked me about in front of my wonderful, uh, you know, my big screen here with Apple. It, and my it's an Apple keyboard. 
an original trackpad held together by a hinged dock. Ah, yes, I do know. I know exactly what you're talking See? about. See, and yes. how cool is that? Come on. I have yeah. one of those here somewhere. They gave it do to you me really? in MacWorld one year. Okay, see? But then I got a new trackpad. No, it's useless. So. Well, there it is, and nonetheless. And <laughs> listen, um, I want to make sure you understand that as of today, there's a new movie coming out, and you'll learn all about me through this movie. It is For the Love of Spock. That's right. I'm a Trekkie. And it's coming out um, like right now, and I can't wait to see it. So I'm talking about a movie I haven't seen yet because nobody's seen it. It's um, uh, a story that was put together by Spock's son, uh, and it's the 50th anniversary of uh, You mean the Leonard Nimoy Spock? Oh, yeah, man. Because there's a Absolutely. new Spock, you know. There's a new Spock? Have you not seen the last two movies, three movies? Yes. There's a new oh, Spock, oh, oh, you're, the younger you're, well, generation. Oh, no, I was talking... Oh, yeah, yeah. I was talking. Hello. I was talking about the 50th anniversary of the flipping series here. OK. You know, and um, I've been doing the same thing I've done with CSI and I just whip out my Hulu and I go right back to season one, episode one and work my way through. Um, clearly, you know, the animations and all the rest of it, a little scary at that time in history. It was like a long time ago. And um, Captain Kirk actually had a, you know. Had, had some pretty nice abs then. Things have changed. Um, however, uh, what's interesting and what, what I'm reminded of, again, is is that it was way ahead of its time, right? Gene Roddenberry was oh, yeah. bringing up issues that were extraordinarily potent and um, amazingly powerful uh, and poignant. Um, it was sort of interesting, um, when you think about it, it oh, was it's a, super interesting. You know what I mean? Sci-fi in general has always kind of broached social issues that like the mainstream at the time wouldn't touch, but they could do it in a way that was, oh, this is way in the future. So you can view it through different lenses. But then it always applies to like current issues. Like it's kind of uh, an abstract way of, of broaching social issues that would not otherwise be you couldn't get it onto tv or you couldn't talk about it yeah yeah and i i just love it so i'm i'm kind of going through them all now um and once again reminding myself uh how extraordinary it was although my all-time favorite will always be the trouble with tribbles yes um yeah, wasn't that just totally the best it is kind of Come the quintessential on. star trek oh, totally episode, yeah. i mean it opens up the the big door and like nine thousand tribbles fall on them and there are these little hairy things it's just you know and you're thinking i'm a grown adult why do i like this stuff what's wrong with me because and, there are very adult themes in it totally very adult messages hidden under all of that absolutely there's no question about it what about books for you what do you like Mm. Right now I'm reading uh, William Gibson's, um, I've totally forgotten the name of it. I always forget the name of the books I'm currently reading. It's his latest one. It's uh, it's about a future that the time, it splits off in time, but they can still reach other kind of uh, time streams to take commercial advantage of the people there in the kind of primary times it's it kind of it's fascinating it takes a while to get into but is um, that the neuromancer no that's way old i love okay. neuromancer but this is like just came out in the last year or two 
okay, just came out in the last year. But it is, I mean, that Neuromancer was William Gibson. William Gibson coined the term cyberspace. Like, he's kind of the godfather of what they now call speculative fiction. Used to be called hard SF and then cyberpunk, and now it's speculative fiction, which is, you know, fiction that's not quite fantasy, just real enough to be kind of more of a statement. Um, The complete sprawl trilogy. Well, yeah, yeah, that would be Neuromancer and Count Zero and, yeah. Amazing, absolutely amazing. Well, I've got a very interesting uh, recommendation for you uh, that was just so fascinating when it first came out. Um, There was a hospice nurse in Australia. Her name is Bronnie Ware. Of course, Bronnie, hello, you know, Australia. And um, she, you know, as a hospice nurse, she just sort of hung out with folk who are about ready to pass. And and she uh, helped them with that. And um, brilliantly empathetic, amazing woman. And uh, then she started listening to them. And when these people would talk to her, they would uh, tell her their regrets. And um, she, she was really hit with that. She thought, you know, something, I should share this with the world so that you don't have to regret about it, right? And so she wrote a book that was just positively brilliant. It was called The Five Regrets of the Dying. And even though it sounds a bit morbid, it's not. It's just a reminder, yo, are you hitting these? Okay, here we go, real quick. The first one, I wish I'd had the courage to live a life true to myself, not the life others expected of me. Ooh, right? Yeah. Number two, I wish I I hadn't worked so hard. Hmm. And, And what was interesting, she said that this came from almost every male patient she'd ever helped. It was mostly the men. Okay? And then number three, I wish I'd had the courage to express my feelings. Most people suppress them. They never get them out there. Let me guess. That was probably men, too. No, actually, women had a lot of problems with this, too, because they didn't want to rock the boat. Right. You know, women are horrible people pleasers, right? And so they're going to keep it to themselves and implode. And so I think that that one is a male-female gig. The I wish I hadn't worked so hard as a major league um, male gig. Um, although, as the millennials, you know, circulate through, I think a lot more women are going to be, you know, saying that to themselves as well. Number four. I wish I had stayed in touch with my friends. Interesting. Because, you know, it's work to stay up with people. You know, you know, people just don't, you know, hang out and wait for you to phone. I mean, you got to work it. Relationships really require nurturing. And people forget about that stuff. And so suddenly there you are. And then um, number five, I wish I had let myself be happier. Interesting. And this is a real surprisingly common one. Many of people that she talked to didn't realize until the end that happiness is a choice. It's a choice. And they didn't have to be stuck in old patterns and habits, right? The so-called comfort of familiarity, you know, um, you know, you didn't have to do that. You could have broken out at any point in time. It's the fear of change, that had them, you know, pretending to others and themselves that they were happy when they really weren't, when they really longed to do something differently and be happier. 
So define it for yourself and go for it. Kick some serious butt and make it happen. The the episode I'm going to tell you about hasn't been published yet, but it will come out right before your episode. Um, I interviewed Danielle Clay, who is a nurse working with cancer patients, usually terminal cancer patients. So not a hospice nurse, but someone who sees that all the time. And the entire episode is kind of in that vein. I think you'll enjoy it. How cool is that? I love that. I just think it's really important to remind people, you know, of these issues um, so that before they're on their deathbed. Yeah. Well, you know, I mean, so that what you can actually say is, uh, you know, um, when when the time comes, you can smile and say no regrets. Yeah. Right. No regrets. Those two words. No regrets means a lot, kiddo. It means you went out there and you fearlessly kicked some serious butt. That's what it's all about. And or, you know, it's really, or go ahead. You're really good at convincing yourself you don't regret anything. Well, you know, there's denial too. Yes, right. That would be and, that would be the word denial. Yeah, we don't. Yeah, we we, we you know we want to just be authentic, transparent, genuine. And if you're that, if you truly are telling your true truth, then you could bag this whole thing with, uh, you know. Um, lying to yourself. You just sit there and you say to yourself, you know, I really went out there and I did my own thing. And, you know, recently, um, Mark and I went to um, Santa Fe, New Mexico, um, and we uh, lucked out totally and were able to get into Georgia O'Keeffe's um, actual home in Abiquiu, wow. um, which, you know, I mean, it's like ridiculously hard to get into, but we did. And what really hit me there was uh, as we were listening to the story and the and and her amazing history and what she'd done with her life. I mean, she just did. She was fearless. She didn't allow things to just get in her way. And when something happened to her, she had incredible stress resilience. Um, for instance, go figure. As she got older, you know, she died um, uh, almost ninety nine years old. But as you know, in the la- in her 90s, as she developed macular degeneration, which took away all of the um, sight in the middle part of the eye, which makes it all but impossible, obviously, to paint anymore. Now, Lord knows she was prolific and she'd already painted, you know, a mountain of magnificent stuff. But did that stop her from doing her art? No. Instead, what she did was she learned pottery. And you see there with her hands, almost like Braille. Right. She would able she was able to do some beautiful uh, pottery. And then what she loved to do more than anything else is walk through her gardens because she was a major foodie. She was like cool and healthy eating and fit to live nourish wise. I mean, she was totally fit to live in every single way. Um, But, you know, walking in her garden was a little tricky. Because she couldn't see in the in the middle part, and and she didn't want to fall to the right or left because she was getting older. So she simply cut out. She had her gardeners cut out all of the um, path such that it had um, a little hill to it on each side, so that she can actually feel her way down the path side to side because she couldn't see the middle. This woman just knew how to adapt and adjust no matter what hit her, and she didn't sit there and do what I call BMW, bitch moan and whine. Right. Like, oh, my God, I got macular degeneration. Oh, my God. You know, this is so unfair. No, I'm 95. You know, my eyesight went. OK, <laughs> no, work with it. <laughs> and, and, and I just I loved her chutzpah, 
her ability to just get out there. And, you know, it's interesting when the um, when uh, Stieglitz, you know, her eventual husband, um, you know, the very famous photographer uh, helped her uh, help facilitate her very first showing um, of her incredible irises, those beautiful, uh, you know, flower pictures that were very erotic. Yes. Right. Um, all right. So when the um, critics um, first saw it, you know, and there were a bunch of, uh, you know, old codger losers um, in the in that era, um, they all said, oh, my God. And this is, you know, just this blasphemous and, and it's too erotic and whatever. And her response was uh, phenomenal. And I actually heard it. It's on rec. I mean, in other words, it was recorded when she responded to this. And her response was, so you think it's erotic? You think it's too much for you? Great. I'm going to make them even bigger. And that's when she made the monster irises <laughs> just to kind of shove it up their nose. And by that time, of course, um, people caught on and they were beginning to fall in love with the fact that she literally became the mother of modernism, yeah. um, modern art. She had um, a good time. Oh, yeah. And she just rocked it. Completely, totally rocked it. Took long walks with her chows. Um, she went through seven chows. She always had two chows with her, those gorgeous dogs. And um, she called them the little ones. And um, when one got sick and, you know, began to pass away, she would immediately get another. Always had two with her. Went through seven of them um, over the years, you know. And uh, went outside. Absolutely could not get enough of the outdoors. And Lord knows in Santa Fe, there's, you know, it's, it's just ridiculously <laughs> gorgeous. Um, and and she only ate that which she was able to actually grow around her, with um, the exception of uh, picking up some meat and fish um, from other folk and, and helping them. But other than that, I mean, her orchards and her gardens were unspeakable, uh, just gorgeous. She just, you know, she just uh, was extraordinary. And, and um, I can imagine, I took a picture, um, and I'll send it to you, Brad, of the, of the very famous ladder, you know, that ladder painting that is yeah. um, in somebody's museum right now. And uh, I stood next to that ladder and I just stared at it because I could imagine her going up on that ladder after she'd had her dinner. This is what she loved to do. All by her lonesome. And she would sit up on the roof and she'd just look at the stars. It's I beautiful. say, rock on, Georgia. Yeah. Rock on, Georgia. Nice. So I think you just got like five top picks in. <laughs> I'm gonna let it go. You're a special guest. Yay! Fit to live. She was fit to live. Come on, we circled right back. Yeah, there you go. You brought it all together, so it works. Yeah. All right. Um, well, okay. So your the the Discovery TV thing isn't streaming anywhere, as far as I can tell. No, it's not streaming. That those uh, shows you can find in the archives if you just simply go to discovery.com. They're all there. If you just put either National Body Challenge or Could You um, Survive, um, they're all kept on the uh, on the thing there. Um, in addition to all my other work that I've done with them over the years, um, so that's all good. But what I highly encourage everyone to do um, is to go to my website. So you can read more about a lot of this, and that's just simply uh, Dr. Peak D R P E. Eke.com, and also visit me over at my Facebook at Dr. Pam Peek, again, P-E-E-K-E, -E -E, because what I love to do there, that's my professional Facebook, 
Um, and what I do is I synthesize science, just like what I was describing with the gene expression and whatever. But I do it in a really cool way. It's called edutainment, meaning that I make it highly um, entertaining at the same time you're being educated because it's the only way you're ever going to remember it. Perfect. All right. And I'm Brett Terpstra. I'm at brettterpstra.com. TT Scoff everywhere else. Thanks for being here, Dr. Pam. Oh, you're so welcome. This has been a fun episode, and we'll see everybody in a week. <laughs>